This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello, great to be here. We'll we'll be the judge of whether it's great for you to be here, actually. (laughs) I would expect nothing less. Technically, the (laughs) the listeners will be that. That's true. And if not, they get to vote one of us off the island. That's right. Today on Unorthodox, we're bringing you two mini interviews, or dare I say micro interviews. We're gonna talk to saxophone sensation, Evan Jacobson. And when I say saxophone sensation, it's much funnier than that. Sax sensation is kind of cool, but what he does is actually hilarious. So so stick around for that. And then we're also gonna talk to Sean Sotero, who is author of a new book about rapper Takashi69. Stephanie, how are things down there at Butnick South in Florida? So yeah, I'm in Florida. We took Edith on her first airplane um, down to see my parents. And we, we've we had a bunch of milestones while we're here. But the biggest developmental milestone we've had is that Edith had her first bagel yesterday. Oh, <laughs> Like rolling over, sitting up, I do not care, gnawing on that carb. It was honestly like a little emotional for me. So, you know, a child's, bagel identity is imprinted from that first bagel. Was it a good bagel? Was it was it Montreal? Was it Cleveland? Was it New York style? No, it was Florida. Was it Brugger's? Was it Einstein Brothers at the airport? It was a Florida no, it bagel. Was, was it-, it was a good bagel, but it, it was a multi-grain bagel. So I kind of like, whoa. You know, I started sending the photo around and people were like, what? Her first bagel is a Florida bagel? And I'm like, yeah, it was. People are judgy. People are haters. But she will grow up to be like, wait a minute, mom. This thing is like crusty on the outside and like chewy and delicious. And they say, that's not a real bagel. Real bagel is small and stiff and cardboard-like. Honestly, it was a, it was a delicious bagel. I had three quarters of it fit and gave her a quarter to gnaw on. And she seemed to love it. And I was just like, welcome, Edith. Welcome, welcome to this amazing rite of passage. You can fight about bagels for the rest of your life. And now we'll take her to, to Milwaukee to have Kasha Varnishkis. <laughs> all, all the major <laughs> Jewish culinary centers. Uh, well, you want to peek into her future? Two of my daughters had a, a joint sleepover. They're friends with a pair of sisters. And I asked the younger of the daughters who went, when she came back, I said, what did you guys do? And she said, daddy, it was so much fun. We told each other scary stories and um, there were mean monsters. And at one point we scared each other by playing Vladimir Putin. <laughs> like he was the ev- He was the evil one. And I was actually, you know, this was both hilarious and also kind of poignant. You know, the just as during World War II, you know, you'd play war and someone would play the Japanese and the Germans and someone would be Hitler and and Tojo and what and they're playing Putin as the scary monster. I laughed and then I was kind of moved that they knew about this and that they got that he was the scary monster, that their sort of their geopolitical morals were well aligned. And I just this is this is uh second only to to my children hunting down for Abu Bakr el Bad Doggy. Uh but but what I love about this like complicated thing, like did they set up other kids as like Moldova? France, like begging them for air supplies. And then there was the UN kids who were like, well, you know, the most we could do is like maybe hobble the banking system. And the most popular kid got to be Zelensky. Right. Is that? And I don't the know. the kids I who are Putin didn't get to watch Netflix because Russia just took. But by the way, I'm sorry. But like just speaking of these sanctions, if your sanctions are like, yes, uh, Russia, we're going to take away 
Netflix, Facebook, and YouPorn, within like three weeks, Russia is going to be like the most well-adjusted country on the face of planet Earth because <laughs> they now like literally have to talk to each other. This makes me so sad for these kids, right? It's like the big bad man is not an ogre of a fairy tale. It's like a real life megalomaniac who is like wreaking havoc on the entire universe right now. Well, that beats last week when they played like Elizabeth Holmes and and <laughs> they Delanos. all wore turtlenecks. Yeah. <laughs> the Tinder swindler. Honestly, I have to say, I'm glad that their that their sort of darkest nightmares have moved on from COVID related stuff. Oh, that's true. That's true. Now it's like back to just normal geopolitical bad guys as opposed to weird invisible plagues. It's, you know, there's, it feels like kind of a return to normalcy. I mean, ripped from the headlines. The punchline of course is this was the first big unmasked. We don't care. We don't give an F sleepover, right? This, these were kids who are, you know, vaccinated and in like a, a decline of Omicron world where they're actually having a proper life. And so, you know, it literally was goodbye, goodbye COVID Hello, you know, Vladimir Putin as the devil. <laughs> By the way, how how Jewish is this? Is like, oh, oh my God, there's nothing for us to worry about. Oh no, hold on. War. Hold it's on. Good. We could be anxious about something. Oh my God. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, So look, speaking of anxieties, there's a lot of news of the Jews this week. Just to give you a sense of what it is, you got Ukraine, where there's always Jewish news. You've got the new season of American Idol, which starts this week, which has a modern Orthodox female girl contestant. The statue of Anne Frank in Buenos Aires was ripped off its pedestal by vandals who may have just wanted Anne Frank in their rooms for weird kinky worship stuff, fetish stuff. They may have wanted to melt the statue down for medals. We don't really know. Naftali Bennett met with Vladimir Putin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, J. Crew, the only thing we really want to talk about is this very, very important bit of, you know, statistical demographic research. Leo Leibovitz, what could I only be talking about this week? What would you say, Mark Oppenheimer, are the best cities on the face of God's green earth at solving the real challenge to humanity, which, as we know, isn't war or, or hunger or any of those other minor plagues, but rather solving the daily wordle challenge? Where would you say on earth are the best wordlers, the best people at solving at, I don't know, two guesses or less. I'm going to guess Bangkok because aren't the Thai very good at English language Scrabble? That is the most charmingly specific bit of like bias I've ever seen anyone display. But no, Thailand is nowhere on the top 10. I was going to say somewhere in England, like word snobs of the English language. Hmm. They know nothing, nothing of English, though their former penal colony, Australia, does, as the Australians seem to dominate most of the top 10 spaces. But number two, with a respectable 3.63 average guesses, is our very own Jerusalem, Israel, where people like uh, spending a lot of time thinking about words in the particular order. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do here. We, we know from this. We have Dafyomi. This is crazy because there's not that many of the cities in the top 10 that are not English-speaking cities. A lot of these are Australian cities, then, of course, Paris. There's not that many cities on here that don't have native English speakers in it. Well, wait a second. And the fact that Jerusalem is number two, yes. Wait a second. Could this not be the substantial 
expatriate American, British, <laughs> Anglophone community in Jerusalem. People have made Aliyah, you know, they're, they're homesick for America and they stay in touch by doing New York Times crossword puzzles, um, spelling bee and Wordle. Well, the WhatsApps of the observant Jews, maybe other had been overtaken with their Wordle scores every day. It's not yeshivish guys at the Brisker and the Mirror Shuls on break. It's like my mom's cousin Judy. I'm sorry. It's 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 the Mir Yeshiva just after Seder Rishon sitting there in the morning be like, no. well, you know, Gematria is so tough shin pay bet. You know, it's the cool new <laughs> word thing. It's the Verdal. It's not the Verdal. You know Wordle? You put the W there. The W doesn't belong in the third spot. Can't you see the yellow? Come on. Friend of the show, Devin Beshevkin, had a great tweet last week where he said, Wordle is Dafyomi for non-Jews, question mark. Um, and then that the shrugging face. And of course, Dafyomi, the daily study of the Talmud that, that Jews across the world do together. Liel does it every morning uh, with a modern spin on his Take One podcast. It is true, Liel. Like, can you explain this to someone who doesn't who doesn't know from Wordle or Dafyomi how these things are quite similar? Yeah, I mean, I I love the thought because I think, first of all, this notion that you have just one bite-sized little thing a day, that this thing that you do is based on words and text, uh, that it involves a certain kind of element of, of sort of trying to understand a system that's just a little bit intricate and a little bit gamified, as the Talmud, as those of us who read it know, it requires some some decoding on your end. And just to be in this kind of textual environment and, and sort of try to work your way towards making meaning out of something that doesn't necessarily immediately lend itself to understanding and doing this in you know 15 minutes or less that's uh, that's where we at I am going to hang out there on a limb and say, I think it's American expatriates in Jerusalem. But look, this is the kind <laughs> of thing, this is the kind of thing that the J Crew exists for. We have a huge listenership in Israel. I want you to tell me, like, what's the Wordle scene there? Who's doing it? Call us, 914-570-4869, or email us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. When I heard about Jew of the Week, Evan Jacobson, I said, that guy belongs on Unorthodox. I think it was our producer, Quinn Waller, who brought us the news of Evan Jacobson. He is a TikTok saxophone sensation. You might have seen his viral series in which he adds saxophone solos to, quote, songs that don't need them. Well, we thought, we need you to add sax solos to songs that don't need sax solos. And so we got him to do some saxophone improvisation for us, Jewish style. And we're very fortunate that he said no to my request to do the same thing to the theme from Schindler's List. So thank you also for being a more discerning human than me. Here's Evan Jacobson. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throat and she cut your hair Evan, thanks for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be talking to you. When you're not on TikTok playing saxophone, what is it that you do? 
I'm a student still at NYU. I have a one semester to go until I graduate. But when it's not social media, it's all making my own music, recording with my friends. I'm still a musician outside of social media. So when did you start playing the saxophone? And do you play other instruments? Yes, I do. I play piano. I play a little bit of flute and clarinet, but that's not too much of a commitment for me. And I started playing when I was around, I want to say 12. So it's been around 10-ish years. So how did you get the idea for a TikTok series in which you add saxophone to songs that don't need saxophone? I had seen people adding, like really talented musicians, adding their own takes to songs that are already super popular. People just adding, you know, a guitar riff or, you know, singing a harmony. That's kind of how music has emerged on TikTok is like something that people can add to songs that people already know. And I'd been doing it a little while before anything really gained any traction, but I, I was just doing it for fun. Like I had always, that's always been how I've was practicing and just playing random stuff over songs that I love. And since that style of video was getting traction on social media, I thought I would give it a try. So I I want to promote a theory and see how you feel about it. Sure. I think the greatest musician currently alive and working in America is undoubtedly Weird Al Yankovic. And one reason uh, why he's so incredible is because he actually understands that humor really belongs in music. Like I listen to your stuff, like that shit's really funny. And I feel like so many musicians are like, oh, I have here a cantata for the 13th century, you know, Roman, whatever. Like, it's so kind of like self-possessed and intellectual and, and, and tortured. And I listen to your stuff like, this is joy. Shouldn't, shouldn't music be funny and joyful? I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think there's a natural sort of irony in a cheesy sax solo. And, I, and so I think if I can capture that like kind of ridiculousness of like a wailing sax solo on a pop song that people already know and aren't really expecting it, but also like put my own like artistic spin on it. So kind of combining the, the irony and the, and the seriousness is I think where my, where my sweet spot is. But yeah, I think there's... There's a lot more room for humor in, in music. And so my videos definitely try to try to touch on that a little bit. Is it just that it's an, it's an instrument that was on 80s tunes that now seem cornally retro? Or do you think there's something essential to the quality of the timbre or the sound that makes it ironic and funny? You know, I think it's a little bit of both. It's definitely the context of it. Like in the 80s, you have like Careless Whisper with like some ridiculous... Fucking the greatest song ever! Of like, course, careless, I mean, <laughs> careless whisper is like there's. No, I will pull over on the highway and just like idle the car and, and, and listen cry. to careless whisper. Exactly. I mean, it's it's so good and like Baker Street. <laughs> Jerry yes, Rafferty. Jerry yeah, Rafferty. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's definitely the context, but also, I mean, there's solos that exist on other instruments in these songs, and they don't really get the same level of notoriety and, like, cheesiness as a sax solo does. So maybe it's not just the context. I feel like maybe it's just something about the tone. So, listen, what's next? I mean, you've conquered the world of of TikTok jazz solos, and you're a multi-instrumentalist, a multi-hyphenate and multi-instrumentalist, about to graduate from college. Where do you want to take this? Well, that is largely yet to be decided, but... I have music coming out. I, I'm working with a couple bands. I'd like to launch my own solo project. There's a lot 
of untapped potential, I think, for me musically. TikTok is just one outlet that I use, and it's a great way for me to show that I that I can play and that I like to play. But in terms of what's next, I have my own projects that I'm working on, and you know, maybe there maybe there's a tour in the in the books with one of the artists that I've added a sax solo to. Maybe they would maybe they would hit me up and be like, "Oh yeah, come on tour." Well, you could come and tour with us. We'll talk, yes. and you just okay. add a solo um, to any yes. Mark Oppenheimer rant. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and we interrupt each other all the time, so you'd have to just you just play us off, basically. It would be easier for me to interrupt you than vice versa. That's <laughs> true. We finally met our match. <laughs> Evan, we're going to listen now. Uh, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. And uh, we're going to have a listen to uh, your your sweet sack stylings over a little Jewish ditty that, that some of our listeners will know. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks. This is great. Thank you, Evan. Thank you. Mailbox. Got a letter in the mailbox. Got a letter in the mailbox. Mailbox. It is time to go to the mailbox. It is time to do what we really want to do this week, which is to take a much delayed dive into the overflowing, overstuffed mailbox. Leo, would you read the first letter, please? With pleasure, as this is a topic very close to my own heart. My husband and I, writes our listener, Pam, fall into the very small Venn diagram overlap of Jewish unorthodox listeners and RV travelers already. Pam, rock the flip on. This is precisely my live stream. This is how I see myself in the not-too-distant future. You would. You would be an RV oh, guy in about Lord. 15 years. Right. Sure. I, I, can't, I can't freaking wait. This is exactly my vibe. We love listening to the latest episode on driving days, and we both looked at each other and were so surprised when on episode 306, Mark said, Greeks, along with Mormons, are as close to being Jewish as you can be without being Jewish. I've never heard a statement like this before and truly don't recall many instances of hearing Mormons and Jews compared. And I need to know more about what was behind this casual one-liner. Our ecumenical correspondent, Mark Oppenheimer, explain yourself. First of all, Pam, I want to congratulate you on being named Pam, which is a name that, as you may know, is completely dying out. There is no three-year-old Pam on any playground in America right now, much to the chagrin, of course, of uh, Cosmo Kramer from Seinfeld, who famously fell in love with a woman because her name was Pam. I gotta go meet Pam. I'm Pam. Name is Pam. Pam. Well, I'm sure he'll be sharing his next one with Pam. It's Pam. Pam, what about Pam? I love her, Jerry. (laughs) What about her name? Pam? Oh, it's a beautiful name. Pam. 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 Having dealt with that important matter of just saying, what a name, I will answer this question for you. Jews and Mormons have everything in common, not just that they are two of the most economically successful ethnic minority or or religious groups in America, and polls consistently show that. They both have very, very high education levels, Jews somewhat higher, and often at more elite schools, you will find more Jews at a place like Yale or Berkeley or NYU than than Mormons, but there are a lot of Mormons at top schools and a lot of them go to college if often, you know, BYU, University of Utah, et cetera. I mean, YU, BYU, it's the same. And actually, (laughs) if I'm not mistaken, there is some sort of joint program of BYU students visiting Yeshiva University and vice versa. Maybe someone can write in about this. I remember there was some 
BYU-YU mashup that used to go on between Brigham Young and Yeshiva. I went to BYOB. That's a very different school. <laughs> that is not BYU. BYU no. does not have a program, a, a study abroad at BYOB. But that segues into both of these religions have dietary restrictions, right? Different ones, but they do. Both of them have special undergarments, right? Uh, Mormons wear a special underwear type thing that is not dissimilar from the talit katan that observant Jewish men and some women wear. Uh, both of them have a promised land that they will call the promised land. In both cases, it is arid and desert-like and they have made it bloom, Israel, Utah. Both of them refer to those outside the faith as Gentiles. They have a sense of themselves as kind of the chosen and then everyone else is the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles, right? And they will both say Gentiles. They both have a kind of homeland school it might, you know, for the Jews, it might be Brandeis, it might be Yeshiva University, it might, whatever you want, Penn, some would say. For the Mormons, it's Brigham Young, but then also University of Utah, Arizona State University, a lot of Mormons in Arizona, a lot in Idaho. I could go on, but they have created community and kept their boundaries with clothes, dietary restrictions, schooling in very, very similar ways. There are massive differences as well that if you want to write back, I could go into important ones, <laughs> but um, but that's, you know, it's not crazy. I'm, I'm glad to uh, to further your education on this matter. And um, next week I will be opining on the similarities between uh, Mennonites and Muslims. <laughs> yeah, and one of us uh, chose their promised land in between, you know, Syria, Lebanon, and Gaza. And the other's like, you know what? Idaho, Wyoming, right. and Colorado. Exactly. <laughs> they have... <laughs> A couple weeks ago, Stephanie, you had this question about what would your friend Irene call her baby who is half Jewish, half Greek? And let's just say the bar was set very, very high with pizza bagel, which were, you know, people who are Italian and Jews. Right. And so we got a great suggestion from Jordana Schmeier. I'm not going to call her Jordana Schmeier because as someone with a last name people like to, you know, have fun with, I'm not no. going to do that to her. You? She suggests... Jusaka, as in moussaka. And she clarifies, I know that Bulgaria and Turkey may also claim moussaka, as the Greeks do, but I think it works. Jusaka, uh, that is Jusaka. amazing. I have a question though. Would you call the baby moussaka? Do you have a piece of moussaka, a slice of moussaka? A slab of moussaka. I'm just wondering, I think it's brilliant, Jordana Schmeier, but I just wonder, how do you use it? What's the, is the usage like, oh, that's the sweetest little schmear of moussaka, slice of, slab slice. of moussaka. I just, I don't know. But listen, we also got another suggestion that, that gives Jusaka a run for its money. It came in over the voicemail. Have a listen. Hi. Uh, rather than spam a copita bagel, how about much more simply Juvlaki? So Juvlaki. I, I like that. I like that I think a that's lot. that's good also. You like that? Yeah, I could, I could hear. Yeah. It rolls up the tongue. Like, ah, I'm just a Juvlaki, you know. <laughs> I think it gets at your issue of like portionality, Mark. And while you were trying to figure out what to call someone who's half Jewish, half Greek, I was wondering if I could become the world's best Jewish curler. And apparently not. Stephanie, you want to go to the mailbox for this? Yes. An incredible note that says, Hi, Unorthodox. Sorry, but not sorry to inform you that Mark is definitely not the best Jewish curler alive. <laughs> you guys need to talk to my little brother, Ari Krasik, who was recruited from abroad for Israel's national men's curling team several years ago and officially became a citizen of Israel in order to join the team. He claims that there are much better Jewish curlers than he, but as his proud sister, I have to contest that he's up there in the stratosphere of great Jewish curlers. I've CC'd him on this email, and you can write to him if you want to hear more about Jewish curling and the improbable history of curling in Israel. Wishing you all Chodesh Tov and Karach Tov, Malika Levi Beruti. That is unbelievable. In Israel, it's pronounced uh, Kerling. Kerling. Kerling and Wordle. Wordle. 
Liel, did you know growing up in Israel that there was curling the way I vaguely knew it in America, though I would not have known what it was? Oh, ab- absolutely not. <laughs> All right. But that wasn't all. Adam Gropper writes, I did some digging on current curlers while watching the Tim Hortons Briar Cup, which is the national championship for curling now on TV. I mean, of course it is, right? (laughs) Adam Gropper writes, this is very imperfect, but based solely on names, these are the people I've already bageled, identified as Jewish. Team British Columbia coach Steve Gould. Well, this is interesting because Gould can cut either way. It can be very high Protestant wasp, or it can be Jewish. Interesting name, cool. Team Northern Ontario's skip is Brad Jacobs. Again, could go either way. In fact, Gropper writes, he's probably not Jewish, but he's a curling legend. So I had to include him in the hopes that he is. (laughs) (laughs) The term curling legend, right? There's like, (laughs) I just have to laugh, right? Team Nova Scotia has a Ryan Abraham. Also, by the way, interesting, the last name Abraham, not always Jewish. I think there was a senator or congressman whose last name was Abraham, who I think was an Arab Christian. Anyway, I'm not persuaded. Team Saskatchewan, Jamie Schneider. Schneider, famously devious name in that often not Jewish. For example, wasn't one of the Dukes of Hazard John Schneider? Wasn't that actor John Schneider? And not a Jew, I believe. Schneider can go, Schreiber, almost always Jewish, Schneider. So honestly, Proper, <laughs> I think you've completely struck out. I'm not persuaded by any of these. We love the participation. This this sounds like the absolute worst version of Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. Yeah, right. Guess who goes on the ice and are totally easy riders. Team British <laughs> Columbia coach Steve Gould and Team Nova Scotia's Jamie Schneider. <laughs> By the way, if any listener wants to compose for us the curling song, have at it. So few Jews Jews. are into curling. Except in Israel, where something, something global warming. Where it's pronounced (laughs) curling. Now, however, Gropper, having completely struck out on persuading me that any of these curlers is a Jew, does redeem himself by saying, if you want a deeper dive into this, you should reach out to the Menschwarmers. They're a Canadian <laughs> podcast solely dedicated to Jews in sports. It took me a second. There's like, oh, Menschwarmers. Menschwarmers. That is brilliant, right? The fa- I would love to do a crossover ep with Canadian podcast, Jewcasters, the Menschwarmers. They will talk about Canadian curlers who are actually Jewish, and we will talk about Canadians. We're going to ride this as long as we can. We're riding this all the way to Sweeps Week. We will talk about you, Mark, the only Jewish curler we know. That's right. Now, listener Donald Cohen writes a very weird email that I will quote in part. He writes, Steve Schaefer on the American curling team is a Jewish curler and expert in friction. Ooh. That's for curling. He may be a mensch warmer, if you know what I mean. <laughs> At first, I thought this was just deeply pervy. And then I realized what you're doing with this, the brooms is you're reducing friction. And I guess that's what Donald Cohen was talking about. Stephanie, would you like to read the next letter since it's kind of got you in its insights? <laughs> sure. Uh, this is from Jody. In the last couple of episodes, I've noticed a propensity for the use of the term sort of. Stephanie used it at least five times in one question to Wayne Hoffman about his upcoming book. Wayne replied with his own sort ofs. And then when Liel was talking about an impending war in the Ukraine, he peppered his questions to Vlad with sort ofs. Maybe it's a generational thing. I did just turn 54. Americans say um as a filler. Canadians say a, and Israelis say um. My young adult children say like, and I mean a lot. Sort of is a lousy filler since it sounds like you don't really mean what you were asking or saying. Um, That's, yeah, that's a sort of a good, that's sort of a good note. Um, You know, I think when I use it is when I'm trying to sort of prod someone towards something without asserting it for themselves. 
So saying to Wayne, you know, this sort of seems like this. As an interviewer, I find it somewhat a little bit useful. Somewhat a little bit useful. Is that filler? Look, no disrespect, Jody, but but this is kind of a dumb point. You're saying it's a lousy filler since it sounds like you don't really mean what you're asking. You're saying that's why it's a good filler. That's actually, you've just named the semantic work that it does. People use it to actually, unlike um, which is just pure verbal hesitation. I have nothing against it. Sort of is saying maybe, or I'm not entirely certain of the thing I'm about to say, but I'm, or I'm hedging. Yes, it's hedging. What's wrong with that? I, I, and I honestly, I am sort of kind of really fed up with people who police verbal our language and hesitations. I, I'm sort of going to interrupt. Producer Josh. As somebody who has edited thousands and thousands of people talking, I'm really sick, like Liel, of people word policing everybody. And I want to point out that we get a lot of these and we don't run all of them, but 73% of them are pointing out that Stephanie does it more. Stephanie related. Of course, right. And it's actually not true. They've done the studies, whether it's vocal fry or anything else, women get dinged for it, but it's actually pretty equal between everybody. And it's not, it, it, it's, it's actually sexist. Haters be hating. It's like, cut it out because we're not going to listen. Jody, thanks for writing. All right, I'll take the next one. Hi, Unorthodox. I was wondering if y'all could touch on the struggle to find or maintain religious community in this pandemic. I live somewhere where synagogues are still meeting over Zoom and eschewing meet and greet time following services due to COVID. I'm hoping to convert to Judaism, but becoming part of a synagogue community in this landscape seems impossible. I'd love to hear if others are feeling the same and how they're dealing with it, particularly since I'm guessing the pandemic has prompted many to seek spirituality, as it did for me. To be clear, I'm not talking about whether people are for or against COVID restrictions, but how people are coping with such a dramatic change in Jewish religious life. Maybe people are finding wonderful opportunities. Maybe people are hurting. Whatever it is, I'm curious. Kindly, Margaret from Rochester. You know, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about like what the worst age to go through COVID is, whether it's being four at the start or maybe it's being a senior in high school at the start. Sort of like what Mm -hmm. two plus years have had the most, you know, deleterious effects on a young person's life. But I actually think this is a really fascinating point that Margaret brings up, right? Particularly this idea of people who didn't have that community to begin with, right? If you were already part of a congregation where you, you know, you, you regularly did the minion, you were sort of enmeshed in this, in this community already. Yes, it was probably hard to switch to virtual, but you still had that like foundation. And for someone, as she rightfully points out, who who is seeking sort of a spiritual grounding during this very, very, very uncertain time. It must be so, so hard. I'm really curious what people think, particularly from the perspective of someone who didn't go into the pandemic with that tight-knit spiritual community. I mean, Mark, you're you're pretty involved in your synagogue. What, what have you done? Yeah, I mean, we've struggled through it. I'm glad that we've been pretty aggressive at my shul, even as we've been masking in. We reopened as soon as we could and stayed open, although we moved back to masking during Omicron. But we we did outdoor services last summer. We're doing kiddish, you know, wine, bread, and a light lunch in the parking lot now where people take off their masks or keep them on, but feel more comfortable because we're outdoors. Look, I first of all, I want to say something that I hope is useful to Margaret, which is I don't think you're alone. I think that you should call the rabbi and ask for advice. I think you should feel okay about going to rabbis from denominations that might not be your eventual home, whether it's Chabad or other Orthodox communities, or if there's a reform or renewal community, find out who's meeting outdoors. I mean, I think you will find it's okay, as you will learn when you become a Jew, to be promiscuous in where you go. You're not signing up for life if you just sort of shul shop. And I wish you luck with that. I also think that our listeners might have some ideas for you. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff online, but you're looking for a community of people nearby who maybe can be with you on your journey. 
But let me let me make this point, and I don't. I'm sorry that I'm going a little bit off of that. I'm taking this a little bit away from Margaret, which is, I'm trying not to be judgmental as I say this. I've been living this a lot on my own synagogue's board of directors and kind of in my travels, you know, because I've spoken to crowds that are entirely masked. I've spoken behind plexiglass shields. It is a hundred percent the case that there are people leaving reform and conservative Judaism right now, not in huge numbers, but people who need in-person services are finding them in orthodoxy because they've been freer about reopening. And you can be judgmental about that if you want. Obviously, that sort of liberal attitude led to higher infection rates earlier on when some orthodox communities were disregarding masking. I don't want to tar the whole community, the many streams of orthodoxy with one brush. But right now, when you know it's much, much safer to be back in person, you will find most Orthodox communities that are meeting in person and often unmasked. And whatever your time frame is as a reform, conservative, renewal, reconstructionist, whatever shul, you do have to realize that there is a divide opening up between the Jews who are getting back together and hugging each other and celebrating simchas in person and the Jewish communities that in some cases aren't even educating their children in person. This is terrifying to me. And I guess I want to take it back to Margaret by saying, like, here's someone who is looking for some people to meet with her in person, perhaps in a safe way. Again, perhaps outdoors. Why why are the communities in Rochester or wherever not saying, let's meet in the parking lot six feet apart and bundle up and, and talk Judaism? Maybe they are. But I just think that we have to find ways. We have to meet on porches and backyards and be radical about it because otherwise we're just the the people who whose Judaism is entirely on computers. And I think that's that's not Judaism. Now, staying with the conversion, we had a question a couple weeks ago from a listener who said, why is it that when I'm on dates and I tell people I'm converting, the men always offer up this lame joke, oh, me too. And we got a bunch of voicemails on that one. Have a listen. Hi, I'm Orthodox. I might have an answer for the the woman who's trying to date and convert to Judaism at the same time as a very blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jew who often gets mistaken for not a Jew. When men I'm dating find out I'm Jewish, they, no matter what the situation, say, me too. And they (laughs) will then grasp that any remnants of being Jewish that they can get to. So, like, I have a friend who went to a Jewish camp once. I cooked hollow one time with a friend's mom. And it, I think it's because they're so uncomfortable with the fact that they thought someone was the same as them and they're being presented with another. And I think the other half of it is most young people tend to be more liberal and there is something kind of trendy about being Jew adjacent, you know, about being neurotic with glasses and like having a quirky bagel order. There's something that's very trendy about being Jewish. Anyway, uh, I don't know if that's helpful because uh, dating just sucks and best of luck to you. I'm sorry. I have nothing to offer here except dating sucks. I'm a decade older than you are. And if you ever want to know how many terrible people there are in the world, like get on an online dating app and go meet some of them. And I wish I had better news, (laughs) but um, it's very hard to meet thoughtful people who aren't already married to someone else. Hey, Unorthodox, this is Monica DiLorenzo, the Jewish convert who called in to be the Quintern's conversion mentor. I just had to comment on your last show, the lady who was talking about dating in New York City during the conversion process. 
I have to say, I was doing the exact same thing after college, and I just got on date. I think you guys are 100% right. She's got to be dating the Jews. That's where she's heading. It's obviously important to her. She should be dating Jews. I went on J-Date. I was super upfront in my profile. I told them I was observant in these ways, and I was in the conversion process. And if anyone had a problem with that, they weren't the right match for me. And my husband is a um, a pizza bagel, mom Jewish, dad Italian. He thought it was cool. We met up. I ended up doing the conversion just before our wedding, and it was awesome. So, yeah, get out there, but get in the right place. And finally, I threw a bomb into the world of Pennsylvania Jewelry and gentility when I asserted that on the Goldbergs, they erred in having a character use the term Jagoff, which is very much a Western Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh term. And the Goldbergs is set in Philadelphia. And this listener weighed in with the final word on Jagoff. The final word on the final word. Hey guys, I just wanted to let you know that uh, in the suburbs of Chicago throughout the 70s when I was a kid growing up, uh, we used the phrase jag off all the time. <laughs> and uh, that was just anyone who was a jerk. Um, and I think that we all figured that that's sort of where it came from, a combination of jerk and jacking off. So <laughs> that's just sort of the history of jag off in our planet. Um, yeah, so there you have it. That's where it came from in the suburbs of Chicago back in the 70s. If you have thoughts on conversion, Mormonism, where Jews should meet during COVID, curling, or jagoffs, call us at 914-570-4869 or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Sean Sotero is a writer and a podcaster. And as you will soon hear, the reason why we have our own producer, Josh Cross. Sean created and hosted The Cypher, a hip-hop podcast that Josh helped produce. And his new book is Dummy Boy, Takashi 69 and the Nine Trey Gangsta Bloods. It is an unbelievably rollicking good read and a great opportunity to introduce Mark to the wonderful world of contemporary (laughs) hip-hop. I think you're going to like this one. Producer Josh Cross, today we're interviewing your buddy, Sean. Uh, Who who is he? Sean is the reason I'm here. I'm going to tell your mama you said that. Well, Sean and my mom. Because Sean Sotero had a really flaky podcast producer back in eons ago. And I took over his podcast with him around episode 20. And that became a a hip hop show that went on for 250 episodes. Back when Sean was doing all sorts of journalism that we knew he'd do after he left us all and went all to Berkeley College of Music and stuff when we were in high school. Because I've known Sean for 30 years. Wow. And so... Sean's a smart dude, and it's about freaking time he wrote a book. And the book is called? Dummy Boy, Takashi 69 and the Nine Trey Gangsta Bloods. Okay, so we are super excited to have Josh Cross's old friend and, and former podcast mate from their old show, The Cypher, right? It was called The Cypher? Yes. Uh, with us today, Sean Totero, to talk about his new book, Dummy Boy. And I, I'm here as Liel indicated earlier when we were chatting, to play the part of somebody who knows nothing, right? I used to have a teacher who said, imagine that your audience is filled with people smarter than you, but who know nothing about your subject. So that is me. I'm smarter than you, but I know nothing about your subject. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm still back in the space where I see the way that Takashi 69 writes his name and I don't even know how to pronounce it. My ignorance, my shallowness runs deep, as they used to say. So I want you to tell me and the other listeners who might be smarter than you, as one is, but not know your subject at all. Jew of the Week, Sean Sotero, who is Takashi 69 So Takashi 69 you know, is a rapper who is from Brooklyn, specifically Bushwick. Grew up very poor, got into music, started doing some stuff that was had a little bit of success overseas, wasn't really going anywhere, and then hooked up with a street gang, changed his sound, and became internationally famous basically in record time before being swept up in a federal investigation of said street gang and charged with racketeering. You should care primarily because it's a great story. I think that's the qualification to reading any book, right? 
I will interrupt you right here to say I, I'm, I'm a huge hip-hop fan. I urge any J. Crew listener, if you know nothing about hip-hop, if you've never heard the name Takashi, this book is so insanely good. It's, the story is like amazing and Sean is so written. Please continue. The first thing I did today, even before I got out of bed this morning, right? I sort of sleepily rolled over, grabbed my phone, and I looked at Twitter. That first hit of dopamine, right, of who's saying what, who's reacting to what I'm saying, did enough people think my joke about the Oscars was funny, right? And this is really a story of the dangers of that, of what the the never-ending need for attention and response, particularly on social media, can lead to. Takashi is someone who kept doing more and more outrageous things to get attention, and there's a good reason why. It worked. He went from unknown and poor to rich and famous in, you know, 13 months by doing essentially that. Now that you've set up the parameters very well in a way that makes Mark kind of, sort of, maybe understand who he is. Sort of, yeah. I'm, I'm going to rewind and take it right back to the beginning. Because, again, you tell the story so well, I, I, could, I, could, I, could, I could see it, I could smell it. He's, he's in a deli. Uh, he's making what by all journalistic accounts are probably the world's worst sandwiches, burning bacon beyond recognition, like really terrible at it. And a guy walks in and asks, do you rap? And he says, no, right? Because he listens to emo music at this point. What happens next? This guy says, well, I don't care that you didn't rap. I like your look. I like that you're Hispanic. This guy, Righteous P. And he had it in his head. Look, if I can get a Hispanic guy, that'll give me a whole new market. And he liked Takashi's look. Takashi had crazy hair, outrageous clothes that said, you know, shocking things like HIV and other stuff I probably shouldn't say on this podcast. And he thought, I want this guy in my group. You don't rap. That's just a minor detail. I'll write the lyrics anyway. Don't worry about it. And he puts together a group. And meanwhile, Takashi is at this point, how old? 16, 17, something like that, right around there. His mother is a Mexican immigrant who, I mean, to say as hardworking is, is the understatement of the century, right? Literally cleans hotels room, works in factories, any job she could take. They're so poor that he sleeps together with his mother in her bed. An impoverished kid of immigrants like this has someone walk into his deli, into his place of work saying, Hey, man, I don't, I don't care. You're not into this. I don't care if you're a rapper. Like, I'm going to make you a star. I assume it's pretty appealing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he does it. He jumps in. And, you know, he has a great interest in and facility for images, right? So the chance to make music videos, even more than songs, is the thing that's really appealing. So if you combine this need to shock with a love for music videos, you get essentially his early career. He was also blessed not just to have those twin kind of engines moving him along, but also to come of age in, in an age of social media that are seem to be custom built for precisely this, right? So tell us about the early career. Tell us about the Vine. Tell us about Instagram. Even before Takashi became known for music, uh, he was seeking attention. Like I said, he would make these clothes and walk around and people would photograph him. And he even became known, you know, not by name, but became known on like message boards and things because people would snap pictures of him. Like, can you believe this guy? Look at what he's wearing and, and share them. So at that point, he's basically a fashion influencer. More just kind of like a, almost like a novelty, right? Like, uh -huh, uh -huh. Can, okay. can you believe this? Look at this guy. He has what came to be called the pedigree vine. So for people who might not remember what vine was, it was sort of TikTok before TikTok, right? A short video looping video format. In fact, the videos were six seconds, weren't they? Yeah, so he made a Vine where he basically, you know, he'd shoot all these outrageous things in his house. He's standing on a bed and, you know, there's this girl in her underwear 
and he picks her up and does a pedigree, the wrestling finishing move. And, you know, the whole thing was just like ridiculous. And that kind of took off again, even sort of before he was famous, he was the kid in the pedigree vine. When you, you combine all this, he's sort of perfectly placed to begin doing outrageous music videos where the songs are basically almost incidental. So then he becomes an actual influencer, an actual well-known person, actual sensation, and then records an album, the artistic merits of which we will not discuss now, but is, as you said, quickly is recognized as a legitimate rapper, whatever that means, in large part because he has the, the genius marketing move of joining up with a real street gang. There's sort of two things that happen at the same time, right? One is he says, you know what? I'm sick of having a small but diehard audience. I want to not do these like aggressive punk rock influence songs that maybe get me a small fan base in Slovakia. That part's true, by the way. His first diehard fans were in Slovakia. The same is true for Mark Oppenheimer, by the way. Of course. Right. Oh, very, <laughs> exactly. very big there. <laughs> and so he says, you know, I'm tired of that. I want to make more accessible music that everyone likes. So he and his best friend who writes a ton of his lyrics decide to go in that direction. But uh, at the same time, he comes across a member of this street gang, the Nine Trey Gangster Bloods, who's friends with his manager and says, you know, a bunch of people sort of together at the same time come up with this idea. He should do a video where he's just around a bunch of these gang members and they know the video is going to look crazy. It's going to look incongruous. But at this point, he has rainbow hair, usually a rainbow grill in his mouth and the whole history of Nine Trey, it was actually formed in the early 90s specifically to fight the Latin Kings. So having a Hispanic guy around a bunch of Nine Trey gangsters, which is primarily a black gang, already, even on a deeper level, is sort of shocking and incongruous and strange, right? So it it's not just the like, what's this little kid doing here who looks different than all the rest of the gangsters? It's like, even on a deeper level, sort of you know, this doesn't make sense. What's going on? Is this real or is it a joke? He knew he would get that impression. And so they do a video with that concept. And that's exactly what it does. It gets blows up instantly, gets millions of views and makes him a star because people really don't know what to make of it. We won't spoil the book, but a, a lot of the drama is how this marketing ploy slash publicity move slash maybe quasi joke slash internet trolling actually ended up as a, as a very, very big and well-publicized federal court case, which, which you cover amazingly well, which caused real pain to real people, right? He sent quite a bunch of people uh, behind bars, quite a bunch of his former friends behind bars for a long time, didn't he? Absolutely. I mean, sentences in the case range from, you know, five to 20 years. There were a ton of people caught up in this. Because he became a snitch, basically. Yeah, he ultimately became, uh, I guess I kind of buried the leader. He became a cooperating witness, right? Became a snitch, which, you know, was obviously very high profile and sort of anathema to what, you know, when people think of rap, it's like you think of Cameron saying to Anderson Cooper, you know, I would never talk to the cops even to tell them where a serial killer lives, right? Stop snitching. That's sort of the, the baked in ethos, right? So to have someone who was the biggest rap star of 2018 literally in a federal courtroom testifying was just insane. You start the book. I won't speak for the average reader. I started the book and I felt extremely sorry for this guy, right? His father gets sent to prison. His kind of stepfather goes out to a convenience store and gets beaten to death. It's horrible. He finds him lying, dying on the sidewalk. It's, it's dramatic and the poverty and everything. So you kind of want him to succeed, but then very, very, very quickly. And I mean, like, 
two pages into the book, you start getting the real deep, unshakable sense that this is a horrible, horrible, horrible human being. He abuses this lovely young woman who becomes his girlfriend in in horrendous ways that are, you know, in at least in part, you know, publicly documented. He does things without any thought to anyone else's well-being or concern. Uh, he ends up sending a bunch of his former associates who he totally used to get ahead to prison. He also is is kind of a, a, a spoil sport brat in this odd way. You describe how when one of his albums only went number four on Billboard and not number one. He posted videos of himself burn, like tearing down his own posters and giving out free burnt copies of his CDs to people because just a terrible person. Now, you spend a lot of time inside the head and the world of Takashi 69. You were there in the court. You were there from the get-go. Is there a moment in which you feel like, I want out of this fucking nightmare? I have a very complicated relationship with with him and his story. I try to, every time talking about him, bring up the stuff that you bring up. I, I hope that I painted a full picture of him and you have you can see that he did have a hard life and he did have his kind of like villain origin story. Of, but I also try to focus on, you know, this guy did some irredeemably, to my mind, almost basically irredeemably bad things, including the the domestic abuse you brought up. It's tough. I think it's it's complicated. I think you can both have sympathy for him and ultimately think, well, yes, he did some terrible things. And where snitching fits in the sort of moral arc of that is not as important to me as some of the other stuff, let's say. So beyond the amazing story, just on its own merit that the book tells, are we to read this as what? A, a morality tale on the trappings of fame, a cautionary tale about the impact of material culture on art. What, what do you want our listeners, who I really, really hope would go out there and read this amazing book, to take away other than one crazy story of one crazy guy? So there's, there's a couple things. First, it is about the dangers of the attention economy, of the need to constantly get attention in order to feel better, be convinced of your own self-worth, or even keep your career going and get money, whatever. It's about how that can end, like play, play that out to its end. I need attention to succeed. Well, where does that ultimately get you? What do you do to get attention? And where can that end up? Well, maybe it ends up with you in a private federal prison in Queens for a couple of years. And it ends with you, you know, being a pariah and essentially having to live, you know, in secret. Also, to me, it's it's a way of understanding the Trump years. You know, I don't go into this a ton in the book in some ways because it's almost too obvious. But there's a guy who knew how to antagonize his enemies in a sort of shocking, shocking way. There's a terrible person who is very colorful. <laughs> yeah, who's very colorful, who painted himself no matter what happened as an underdog attacked by, you know, powerful forces who manipulated facts whose supporters liked him because of the more and more outrageous and sort of more a busting stuff he did. Like, who, who am I talking about here? So we can't let you go before we ask the question that I know is on everyone's minds. Because look, among our listeners, there are a lot of big Takashi fans, and they must have noticed, as I did, that when he was released, I believe in June or May or something else of 2020, uh, to house arrest, he was, he was given some kind of Hamptons mansion by someone. And the photo that he posted on Instagram yes. is him sitting yes. right in front of a big shelf of a lot of like Talmuds and Jewish books. What's the story yes. there? So from what I understand, 
you know, he was supposed to sort of try to be secretive. But as far as I understand, that was a house on Long Island. He was planning on moving into right before all this went down anyway. I so that's know, what they all say. Not the not the best security. Uh, my my best guess is that was just something that belonged to the you know the former owners in the house. Actually, though, religion did does play a a small but interesting role in Takashi's story. So there's this period of time when he knows he needs to face a judge to be sentenced for this crime he committed back in 2015 that is pretty horrific that I go into detail in the book. So sentencing gets pushed off for three years, whatever. So he's a big star and he's going to get sentenced for this crime he committed pre-fame. And he knows that there's some dispute. Should he end up in, should he get prison time for it? Should he just end up on, you know, parole, whatever? It's, it's up to the judge. And so he undergoes this image rehab. He starts giving money away on camera to whoever happens to be around, school children. And part of it is he gets a spiritual advisor. Uh, this guy in Brooklyn, you know, runs a congregation. Takashi goes to the congregation and speaks in front of them. The video is still out there on Facebook. It's pretty awkward. The spiritual advisor, who happens, by the way, to be uh, close friends with our now mayor, Eric Adams, actually goes to court with Takashi for this sentencing. And naturally, it gets some headlines. And it worked. He ended up not getting, uh, he ended up, you know, not getting prison time for this. God will save you every time. I've always loved the role of spiritual advisor. However, whenever someone gets in trouble, politicians always, you know, then they spend a lot of time with their spiritual advisor. And and I'm, you know, as the world's leading Jewish podcast, I'm troubled that no one has yet reached out to us as their spiritual. People do, but not not in the sort of lucrative damage control mode that we that we would like to be sought out for. Like, I promise you, Mark, you would be my my number one choice whenever I get in trouble and. Sean Sotaro, I want to thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you guys so much. This was great. Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have a mazel tov? I have such a delightful mazel tov that comes to us via the Facebook group from our longtime listener and fan, A.E. Coleman. It's E with, with one of those fancy apostrophes, uh, so I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Here's what he writes. My friend is considering converting, but doesn't have any transportation, so I drove her to her first Shabbat service last night. She was so excited, had her nice clothes and everything. I even played some Nefesh Mountain on the way there, bonus points, and told her about Unorthodox. We had such a wonderful time, and she got a warm welcome from everyone. It was one of those happy little moments of getting to share something that you've come to love and watch the other person take their first steps into it. And you enjoy it all over again through them. I'm not Jewish, though I keep considering it and remain involved with the community. Who knows? Maybe someday. I did joke with her, though, that if she converts and I keep driving her to temple, I'm literally going to be her Shabbos goy. She promised that's how she'd start introducing me. Shabbat shalom, everyone. I hope yours was also the best. A. Coleman, you may be on some distant point in your journey home to Judaism, but let me tell you, you already got menschlichkeit down to a T. And you're not even a mensch warmer. You're not even a mensch warmer. You're out <laughs> on the ice. Out on the ice, curling for the Jews, sweeping them down into the house. Um, I think that's what it's called, the bullseye. What I love about this too is he's not a Jew, but he's a chauffeur to the future Jews. His, maybe his calling is not to convert, 
but to be the guy who drives people to their Shabbos dinners and conversion classes. It's actually the sequel to Driving Miss Daisy. (laughs) Is that what that movie's about? Well, I think Daisy is, in fact, a Jewish woman, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. Which I haven't seen it, though Alfred Urey, the playwright, is from my grandmother's hometown of Lake Charles, Louisiana. Stephanie, on that note, do you have a mazel tov? I have a mazel tov. While I was down here in Florida, I met fans of the show and it was really, really fun. So I have a shout out to the Levitts from Philadelphia because it's always fun meeting people who who like to listen to us. So I have two mazel tovs this week. The first is that our listener, Rachel Bloch, spelled in the echt German way, Bloch, wrote in and said, please wish a mazel tov to my mother-in-law, Flo Bloch, and my niece, Lexi Bloch, and their benot mitzvah on their benot mitzvah this weekend. My 81-year-old mother-in-law has always wanted to have a bat mitzvah, and my 14-year-old niece postponed her bat mitzvah due to COVID, so they did it together. My sister-in-law, Flo's daughter, Marcy, is the rabbi leading the service. Flo needlepointed all 16 of her grandchildren's talit bags, each with a personal message, and will be presenting her needlepointed chuppah that she made for the family at her bat mitzvah service today. The whole family is gathering from Michigan and New Jersey in Boynton Beach, Florida, for the service. Yours, Rachel Block. Mazel tov. Flo and Lexi and Marcy and Rachel and the whole mishpocha, that is amazing. And I'm feeling the bat mitzvah spirit because I was at a bat mitzvah party Saturday night. Sid repped the family at the ceremony in the morning and then couldn't make it to the party in the evening. So I went. It was the bat mitzvah of Sadie Weiner, elder daughter of Uber listener and Jewish name bearer extraordinaire Rachel Leventhal Weiner, longtime member of the J Crew, correspondent for the show, mailbox participant. This bat mitzvah was crazy fun off the hook, and I yanked out my phone and asked Rachel for some thoughts on her daughter's bat mitzvah. You want to say to your daughter? I'm like the hap- I'm like a blob of happiness around her amazing job this morning. I'm gonna deal with that in a second, and, and I'm like. This party is the biggest celebration of her accomplishment. She worked hard, she's performed, she did her thing, she's got all the shockery in her like kishkis, and now we just party down. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by Mark Oppenheimer. That's me and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibovitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our associate producer is Quinn Waller. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem. They're online at golemrocks.com. They are a punk klezmer outfit that once played a wedding I saw, and they were crazy good. The mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Samuel L. Spector. My man Shmuley, Shmuley Spector, at Congregation Kolami in Salt Lake City, Utah. We come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Wasn't Rabbi Akiva also okay. sort of like a, a bit of a hand model himself? Well, Rach Lakish was um, was famous for his hair, and then also was very good on the abacus. So he was he was sort of model slash. Rach Lakish had the bod, computer. Well, yeah, gladiator. He was, as as my as one of my kids would say, he didn't have a six pack; he had a twelve pack.